electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Welcome to this CNBC special, Politics and Profit. I'm Kayla Tausche in Washington. Jim Cramer has the night off. Turn on any nightly news program or look at the front page of any paper and you'll see... The nexus of government and finance is making mainstream headlines daily. Many of these issues are coming to a head all at the same time. Coming up, we'll break down next week's crucial Fed decision and the tools to combat inflation with Council of Economic Advisors Chair Cecilia Rouse. We'll take a look at the geopolitical factors driving big swings in oil and gas prices. We'll also talk clean energy after President Biden vowed to take executive action on climate change this week. And we'll discuss the money issues at play in the midterms and how a change in power could impact the market. But first, a quick check on how we finished up the day and the week on Wall Street. Stocks pulled back in today's session, the Nasdaq leading the declines following a big earnings miss for Snapchat that dragged down all of tech. But it was a strong week overall for the major averages. The Dow climbed nearly 2 percent. The S&P gained 2.5 percent. The Nasdaq climbed more than 3 percent. Let's get straight to the big picture on politics in your portfolio. For that, joining us is Jimmy Pethokoukis, economic policy analyst at the American Enterprise Institute, also a CNBC contributor. Uh, Jimmy, the picture from Washington, is it a pretty one right now? Uh, that depends. That's going to depend on what Chairman Powell says next week. I think everyone's expecting a rate hike, right? We're all expecting a rate hike. But if he gives any indication that he believes uh, – expectations are unmoored, that's the thing that's going to freak out markets. So, again, it seems like it's almost always the case, but right now when not a lot else is going on legislatively, what the Fed does, everyone's focused on it. How high are the stakes for this next week? Will we know by the end of next week whether inflation has peaked, whether we are in a recession? I I don't think so, and I I think we're probably not in a recession right now. Uh, But listen, the fear is when the Fed starts hiking rates, that's going to cause a a recession. Uh, that they're going to make a mistake, and there's going to be there's going to be an overcorrection for the inflation. So that that will continue that will continue to be the concern until they start cutting at some point. Will the outlook improve over the next few months going into the midterms? The White House certainly hopes so. Uh, I think those are probably going to be locked locked down. Generally, how the economy is about the summer and early fall before the election that determines what people's attitudes are. So we're probably already locked in there. 
Jimmy, stick around. We're going to check back in with you throughout the show this hour. Uh, But we do want to move on to another topic, because despite gridlock along all of Pennsylvania Avenue, there is one issue that saw progress this week, and it has a major impact on one sector. A $50 billion package of subsidies cleared a key hurdle in the Senate, driving chip stocks up big for the week, though they are down today with the rest of tech. But the bill is aimed at helping America compete with China, still isn't a done deal. Let's bring in CNBC's Elon Moy, who has been all over the political side of the story, and Christina Partsnevelos, who covers the chips. Elon, I'll start with you. The administration has been pushing on this for months, the better part of a year. So what lit a fire under Congress now? Yeah, Kayla, I think there's really two main factors here. One is just the calendar, and the other one is the business community. Look, lawmakers are getting ready to go on summer recess. They want to be able to bring a win home to their constituents, and they knew that if they didn't get this done now, then it would likely have to wait until either after the midterms or possibly even into 2023. I know the business community has been very focused on this. They want Congress to close the deal. They've been calling lawmakers as well as members of the Biden administration to get them to take out the parts of the bill that have been controversial in the past and just agree on the parts that can win 60 votes in the Senate. So once you had that slimmed down bill, that's what really cleared the way for this to be on a glide path toward passage in the Senate next week, passage in the House likely next week as well, and then onto the president's desk. So, Christina, these companies are throwing out some pretty eye-popping numbers. Samsung floating a $200 billion investment in Texas and beyond if this deal gets done. Are they actually going to deliver on these? Well, the Samsung case, they filed just to get a tax break on 11 plants. But the answer is no. They are just potentially doing this. They have no specific plans just yet. And a lot of companies have been, you know, saying that they're going to do it. Oh, we're going to do it. And then they're they're pulling back a little bit. Overall, though, the United States, when you think of all the countries around the world, Singapore, France, Germany, China, uh, across the board, South Korea, they are throwing money, subsidies at chip companies to start designing and building in their respective countries. So no wonder the United States wants to step up to the plate. However, on the flip side, you could argue this is corporate welfare in a way, right? Shouldn't these chip companies be moving forward regardless, right, given the profit margins for uh, these tiny little brain powers in, in electronics? Yeah, Christina, who stands to benefit more, though, the chip manufacturers or the chip designers? This is this was a debate, especially this week, because the manufacturers could potentially benefit more given the funding will go to manufacturers. But then you had uh, like NVIDIA, AMD. Those are designers. They maybe may not benefit as much. But then you have Micron that is building possibly uh, building another chip plant, too. So I think overall big picture is everyone stands to benefit. But the problem that we never talk about is what about the talent bottleneck? We are going to build these foundries that are going to take, what, two to three years to come, uh, you know, actually be built. But then what about the talent? You need engineers, you need technicians. No one's talking about that. And that's a major concern going forward. Yeah. Elon, as always happens in the legislative process, what ends up getting passed is significantly smaller than the legislation that started out. So what didn't end up on the cutting room floor here? And uh, is Congress going to need to end up doing a follow up here? 
Yeah, so the official price tag for this bill is $79 billion. That's the $52 billion for chips, $2 billion for a public wireless supply chain, or ORAN, and another roughly $24 billion for that 25% investment tax credit. But as Christina was sort of alluding to, there's also at least the authorization for all of these programs designed at exactly that issue of talent, STEM workforce training, uh, science research, technology investments in other parts of the country. That's potentially billions more dollars that could uh, go into those types of issues that Congress agrees on in a bipartisan manner. However, those programs were created in this bill or are being created in this bill, but the money is not being dedicated to those programs in this bill. So Kayla just goes to show you that there's always going to be something to lobby on on Capitol Hill. Yeah. And uh, Senate's back Monday. House is back Tuesday. We'll see what they get accomplished next week. Elon, Christina, have a great weekend. Thank you. Thanks. Let's continue the conversation now with TJ Rogers, the founder and former CEO of Cypress Semiconductor. TJ, it's great to see you. Uh, your initial take on what Congress is moving forward with and whether it will move the needle. <laughs> Big question. Uh, my take is classic pork. It, uh, it looks like the old Semitech did when they squandered money back when the last, the Japanese were about to run over us, by the way, that time. This time it's the Chinese. Uh, they throw a bunch of money at it uh, and, and then pretend like things are going to get better. The, the fact is uh, the, we had a shortage of chips, uh, and, and that shortage is about to end. Micron Technology is, uh, makes DRAMs that are in everything. And they reported, a, they're going to report or did report a weak quarter. And my projection is that the other big companies will report uh, not weak, but nose over quarters. Yeah. Uh, we have a lousy economy, and that's going to affect eventually the semiconductor industry. And we'll get all this money finally through Congress just about the time but we don't need it. TJ, what do you say to the companies who say, there are other countries like Taiwan, like Singapore, like China, who are offering huge incentives to build these facilities in their countries and that the U.S. simply just needs to step up and match those. You don't think the U.S. does? Well, my response to any CEO that would say that in public would be, so we're behind in the pork war. Uh, can you please tell me how we've ever won, uh, how they ever won? You know, we talk about the Chinese. The fact is the Chinese leading foundry SMIC, it is way behind the rest of the world. Uh, the Trump administration assured it will stay behind the rest of the world by cutting off advanced equipment to it. Uh, in Europe, you've got a couple uh, a couple companies, Infineon and ST, that, that are important, and they've been supported with government pork forever. So there's no evidence anywhere in the world that throwing money at semiconductors creates semiconductors. Having but a Silicon then? Valley, having competition is what creates semiconductor companies, not government pork. What then of the national security argument? The Pentagon just this week said Javelin missile systems, which the U.S. has been sending over to Ukraine en masse, now they're trying to restock the stockpiles here in the U.S. Each one of those missile systems uses 200 chips. And we simply don't have them. What do you say to the government that says we need those facilities here in this country? We need them fast. If we have to pay money to get them, it's important. I will speculate that in order to ask a question that, that, you know, it's meaty, that you may be misstated a little bit what they've said, because anybody in the government that says we don't have 200 chips for a missile is outright lying. 
We have everything covered we need with uh, military semiconductors. They typically are 10 years old, not state of the art, not these new plants we're talking about. It takes 10 years to get into a military system. They're already obsolescent by the time they start using it. We have all the capacity we need times a thousand in the United States to make military systems. I sincerely hope no semiconductor CEO said that. Uh, I'd call them out in public. So if this bill ends up becoming law, do you think it's a net benefit for the country and for the industry, or do you think it ultimately ends up hurting them? No country, no, no area in the world, China or Japan or Europe, has thrown money successfully to build semiconductor companies. So step one is, I don't think we ought to take money from people. And we didn't at all talk about the inflation uh, that this government overrun is going to cost and how every American is going to get taxed to pay for this. We didn't talk about the fact that take just Intel. And Intel's a great company, in my mind, one of the greatest companies that ever existed. I'm not knocking them. Last quarter, they did uh, an annual rate of 74 billion in revenue, 37 billion, uh, in, uh, 34 billion in profit. And I looked this up, and they got 37 billion in cash. They don't need the government's money to go forward. Obviously, they'll take free money. It's in their shareholders' interest. It's not the interest of the American people. It's it's the wrong thing to do. And, and like, like I said. Mm-hmm. By the time this stuff comes online, it's going to aggravate a recession, which is going to start a semiconductor recession, which is going to start. All things are showing that within the next two quarters. This well, ultimately, just, don't spend oh. the money. Don't take it from people and give it to rich companies. I don't see why you're doing that. Ultimately, these companies answer to their shareholders. So uh, we will see what happens from here. T.J. Rogers, we appreciate your perspective in your summer seersucker on this Friday evening. Thank you so much. Well, we are just getting started on this CNBC special, Politics and Profits. Coming up, we'll break down the heated debate in Washington over climate funding and the impact on everything from solar to electric vehicles. But first, from inflation fears to the looming threat of recession, we'll talk about the path forward for lawmakers and the Fed and the White House with the Council of Economic Advisors Chair, Cecilia Rouse. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. 
with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to the CNBC special, Politics and Profit. From Wall Street to Washington, fears of a looming recession are front and center. The Federal Reserve expected to hike interest rates by another 75 basis points next week in an effort to tame surging inflation, which just hit a new 40-year high. A big driver of that has been gas prices. President Biden met virtually with his economic team earlier today to discuss steps to ease consumers' pain at the pump. Our next guest was part of that meeting. Let's welcome Cecilia Rouse. She's the chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. Chair Rouse, we're so grateful for your time tonight. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. Uh, You briefed the president today. What were the top lines of that meeting? What did you tell him about the state of the economy, the possibility of a recession, and how long gas prices can keep falling? So the, the purpose of the meeting was to brief the president on gas prices and the efforts of the administration to do what it can. Uh, to address them. So the first and the first piece of business was to really highlight how over the last 38 days we've seen a decrease in gas prices uh, and that uh, the modal, so that means most uh, gas stations are charging uh, under four dollars a gallon. So that's a, so that's important. Uh, but we also know that prices are not uh, low enough. Uh, so the most important way to bring down gas prices is to get more oil on the market. So the president has done that through the historic release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. We talked about how uh, we've been able to execute that on a way that many people did not, in a way that many people did not anticipate. Mm-hmm. Uh, many were skeptical, but we've actually managed to do that. That has been contributing, working with our partners around the globe for their Strategic Petroleum Reserves as well. It's why mm-hmm. the president welcomed the O plus plus's uh, decision to increase production. It's while he was in the Middle East. Uh, he was also briefed on uh, the progress in, in helping the EU uh, consider a, a gas a, a cap on gas on a gas ban. If they have a, a ban, a price cap on on the oil that Russia would receive, and also an update on the conversations that Secretary Granholm has been having uh, with leaders in the oil industry. We know that a lot of this is a wait and see mode until that August 3rd OPEC plus meeting. But I'm wondering in the meantime, uh, gas prices have been falling because people have been fearing a recession, that people will stop spending, they'll stop traveling and that demand will pull back. CEA put out a blog post this week, which I'd love to get your thoughts on because it sought to demystify the definition of a recession, which is in its most basic form, two quarters of negative growth. You say that that's not the case in that blog post, but I'm wondering, is that blog post out there because you're expecting a negative print next week? 
So we put out the blog post that the Council of Economic Advisors is, is designed to give uh, objective advice to the president and to help educate the public and others about economic concepts. And we wanted people to understand that while so colloquially we may think of a recession as two negative uh, quarters of growth, the National Bureau of Economic Research Business Dating Committee actually officially dates recessions. And when they look at the economy, they look at a broad number of uh, measures. They're looking for broad indications of slowdown across the economy. And two quarters, uh, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, while very important and they would take note, is not dispositive. Importantly, they put a lot of weight on employment. And we know from our prior employment report that employment has been growing uh, in the first half of this year. In fact, over the past uh, uh, first half of this year, we've had over a million jobs added to our economy. They look at consumption, personal consumption, and we know the personal consumption expenditures have been growing in the first and second quarters of this year. They look at personal mm -hmm. income. We know that's been growing. We look at industrial production. That has been growing as well. So and inflation, yeah. though, has started to eat into some of that consumption, as I think you noted. Uh, and one of the ways the administration has been seeking to fight inflation is possibly to consider lowering or rolling back some tariffs. J.P. Morgan says that would only help by about a fraction of a percent. But when you're crunching these numbers for the president, what's your view on whether that would actually have a material impact? So first of all, the, the consumption expenditures have been adjusted for inflation. So we are, we are seeing real continued economic activity even as we uh, face inflation, which is completely, is understandably, it's too high. It's why the president is giving the Federal Reserve the space that it needs to, to do its work. So the president is considering uh, the, the tariffs uh, and the impact that they would have on inflation. They're also in a geopolitical context. He's considering that. Uh, I think most estimates are that the kind of tariffs that would be strategically addressed would have some impact, would not completely address our, our inflationary pressures. Look, it's the Federal Reserve's responsibility to really be focused on price stability and maximum employment. The president is doing what he can as well. That's why he's focused on gasoline prices to get more production on the market. It's why even in the longer term, in medium term even, he's focused on increasing the economic capacity of our economy because that is how we absorb the kinds of shocks that we've absorbed with this pandemic and now Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine. So he wants to build a kind of economy that where we have that kind of productive capacity. But, you know, mm -hmm. in the near term, it's the Federal yeah. Reserve. He's giving them the space to do what they need to do. Well, President Biden has also said that he expects to speak with China's President Xi within the next 10 days. Do you expect there will be a tariff decision before that conversation happens? I, well, I'm not going to speak to timing. You know, this is a, this is a complicated conversation that he will have with uh, with uh, with Xi. But uh, what I will say is that the president looks at the geopolitical uh, context. These are complicated times, but he is really focused on maintaining the U.S.'s strategic strength. Uh, he is focused on reducing gas prices. He understands mm -hmm. the impact of inflation, and he's doing what he can to help there. You mentioned the Federal Reserve and its role in fighting inflation through raising interest rates. In the last couple of months, at least two Fed governors have suggested that the Fed should have moved faster in hindsight. Do you wish that the Fed had begun pulling back its asset purchases, begun raising interest rates earlier so that uh, they're not trying to, to slam on the brakes right now? So I, I don't want to comment on the Federal Reserve policymaking. We respect their independence. What I will say is that the U.S. economy 
uh, grew faster last year than it had in 40 years. That, as I just mentioned, we've got a strong labor market. We see consumer uh, expenditures continue to be relatively robust. We see income remains high. We see industrial production is high, which means that our economy has got the headroom uh, to be able to withstand the Federal Reserve's actions that it needs to take to bring down inflation and to withstand the challenges that are brought on uh, by Putin's war against Ukraine. Uh, so we understand, I understand these are going to be challenging times ahead. I do not have a crystal ball. But what I do know is that our economy is well positioned to, 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 uh, to, to muddle through and to power through as the Federal Reserve uh, does what it needs to do. Well, we're going to be digesting a lot of economic data next week in particular. We appreciate you setting the table for us tonight. Chair Rouse, we really appreciate your time. Thank you. You're very welcome. When we come back on CNBC, some progress today in Russia and Ukraine on the global food supply. Why a new agreement could help ease inflation and concerns about global hunger. That's up next. And later, we'll discuss the key money issues in play for the midterms with former senators Heidi Heitkamp and Judd Gregg. And why one Wall Street firm says the elections could give the market a boost into the end of the year. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Welcome back to the CNBC special, Politics and Profit. Here's a quick look at how we finished up the day on Wall Street. Stocks pulled back with the Nasdaq seeing the sharpest declines today after Snap's earnings missed the mark. Mega cap tech stocks like Meta, Alphabet and Amazon all took a leg lower, but the major averages did manage to lock in a solid week of gains. Today, a massive breakthrough that loosens Russia's hold on the global food supply and could begin to stabilize commodity prices around the world. Ukrainian and Russian officials signing an agreement with Turkey and the United Nations that ends a months-long standoff in the Black Sea and paves the way for the shipment of millions of tons of grain and fertilizer. Exports from Ukraine, often called the breadbasket of the world, feed 400 million people. And with Russia blocking the critical port of Odessa, U.S. officials were trying to help Ukraine get that grain out by rail. But according to my sources, Ukraine told the West it would take three years to export a single season's harvest that way. David Beasley, the former South Carolina governor now running the U.N.'s food program, brokered that deal in Turkey in D.C. this week. He warned that Ukrainians' military was, he said he warned them that not getting those shipments out was as good as surrender. He said, do you not understand? Your economy is 50% exports. Russia doesn't have to fire another shot. 
All they have to do is maintain a blockade. You're done. You're over with. You become Moldova. And the West will become leery and it will fade away. And the world needs this port to be open for the good of humanity around the world. You know by now that U.S. food prices have kept rising, but look at the impact of this standoff around the world, especially for countries that are net importers. In Ethiopia, food prices are up 38 percent. In Hungary, Colombia and Egypt, roughly 23 percent, 57 percent in Sri Lanka and 94 percent in Turkey, where that deal was signed. Easily called it an unprecedented crisis that could have resulted in mass famine in less developed nations, but he hopes this deal is the key to avoiding that. Up next, President Biden vowing to take executive action on climate change this week as Senator Manchin sig signals no support for green funding. We'll talk about the impact of everything from solar to electric vehicles. Plus, we'll discuss the geopolitical issues causing big swings in the oil and gas markets with energy expert Dan Jurgen. Our CNBC special returns right after the break. I come here today with a message. As president, I have a responsibility to act with urgency and resolve when our nation faces clear and present danger. And that's what climate change is about. It is literally, not figuratively, a clear and present danger. That was President Biden this week addressing climate change in light of a global heat wave and news that Senator Manchin would not support climate funding in a spending bill. Joining us now to discuss are two executives with a wealth of experience in this space. John Berger is the CEO of residential solar company Sonova and former Ford CEO and CNBC contributor Mark Fields. Good evening to both of you guys. Appreciate you being here. Uh, John, I'll start with you. In lieu of a major spending bill from Congress on climate, what can the administration do here? Well, their hands are fairly tied. Uh, executive authority is fairly limited as far as its impact upon the broader energy industry. Uh, so there'll be pockets here and there that they can make some uh, uh, differences, if you will, policy, maybe some of the loans of the DOE, uh, Department of Energy, but largely in terms of tax credits, incentives, uh, both on the hydrocarbon side in terms of cleaning it up, carbon sequestration, hydrogen, and then on the solar and wind side of things, you're really going to need and absolutely have to have Congress itself uh, to act. So, Mark, earlier in this show, we were talking about the semiconductor industry and how industry has really been pounding the table to get Congress to act where it otherwise may not have. And I'm wondering if you think that the, the auto industry and the clean energy industry just needs to be louder if this is so important. Well, I, th I think put it into perspective, when you, you think about the semiconductor issue, that's around uh, getting more capacity here in the U.S. That's a pretty straightforward issue. Here you're talking about a once-in-a-lifetime energy transition. Uh, and that requires, A, a lot of capital, and B, if you want to speed that up, it's really important to have a public-private uh, partnership on that, because if you leave it to the market on its own, it probably won't get, go at the pace that the, uh, the, the politicians wanted to. So how can you get those public-private partnerships underway? I mean, you need funding for that too, Mark, right? Exactly, and, and, you, and you saw from the infrastructure bill, there's about $5 billion that's earmarked for uh, charging infrastructure. And uh, the, the administration wants to put in about 500,000 chargers, which basically go along the, uh, the interstate highway route, just like uh, we developed the interstate highway a system back in the 40s and 50s under Eisenhower. 
And and so I think the issue going forward is the nation's going to need more than 500,000. So it's a good start. But then there's also uh, private to private uh, combinations that the, the, you know, the Fords and the GMs are making with various uh, charging companies that's going to be necessary to make this transition and make consumers feel comfortable that they can uh, charge their vehicle just as easily as they can gas up today. So, John, if the administration can't hit home runs here, uh, they're trying to hit singles, they're trying to hit doubles. The president's trying to harness what uh, little executive action uh, he can actually do here by uh, funding cooling centers for people who don't have air conditioning and trying to use funding for existing housing programs so that people can buy air conditioning. Uh, but do you think that any of those issues will really be felt on the ground by people in the near term who are dealing with these heat waves? Unfortunately, no. I, I agree with Mark that, you know, if you really want to move and address climate change in a rapid fashion and have the energy transition happen at the pace that we need it to happen, you're going to have to have the power of the purse strings, which rests with Congress. So it's very limited. With that said, the market, the, the free market does have uh, an, a big input on this. Uh, for instance, in electric vehicles, which Mark knows quite a bit about, uh, you look at the price of gasoline at the pump, and that is driving consumers to electric vehicles in droves. Uh, solar, uh, what, what Sonoba does as a service in batteries, the high prices of natural gas, coal, and oil are inflating, and dramatically so, the utility prices across the country, and we expect that to continue. That is driving more and more consumers uh, to companies like ours. And so you see these kind of fundamental energy market moves they, in fact, may have more to do with what could happen and what will happen as far as the transition than any government policy that may or may not be put forth. There will be gaps like, for instance, manufacturing uh, in the solar industry and the battery industry. Some of that is predominantly in China, just like mm -hmm. the semiconductor, which the uh, Congress just passed uh, a subsidy bill for semiconductors. That was a part of this bill that was killed. That is unfortunate. The solar energy manufacturing uh, association did not get that subsidy mm -hmm. through, and I would expect that to happen at some point in time, just for yeah. national security purposes, if nothing else. So, Mark, I'll give you the final word here. Uh, John brought up gas prices and the transition to electric vehicles, but they're not cheap in most cases. And I'm wondering if you're, uh, if you would have expected more people to start buying electric vehicles when gas is at five dollars a gallon in national average six dollars a gallon and upwards in california would you have expected that transition to have happened in a bigger way than we've seen well as john mentioned we're seeing uh, a big uptick in market share but the bottom line is for but you're starting from a pretty low base yeah i mean but even from a low base we have supply is now a greater issue uh, and constraint in the market than demand for evs and that has to do a lot with the supply chain issues, but it also has, as was mentioned, you know, John kind of touched on this. Uh, there's when you add up all the aspirations of the various automakers on, on producing EVs over the next three or four years, um, there's going to be a huge capacity constraint on batteries and battery manufacturers, and that's why you know making sure that uh, there are incentives, particularly here in the U.S., to drive manufacturing here for that is an issue. There's a scarcity of some of the elements like lithium and cobalt. Uh, that's gonna mean the development of new uh, mining facilities, which is gonna have to be fast-tracked by the government. 
But the bottom line is with the high prices of gas, you've seen the prices of electric vehicles go up for those very issues. But the bottom line overall is right now it's a supply constraint, not a demand constraint. Mm -hmm. We will see where it goes from here. We appreciate both of your time on this Friday evening. John Berger, Mark Fields, thanks so much. From clean energy to fossil fuels, Russia resuming gas flows to Europe this week via the Nord Stream pipeline, averting for now a complete stoppage. In the U.S., gasoline prices have been a major concern for Americans all year. They've come down off their highs, but prices at the pump are still way up from last year. Let's bring in Dan Jurgen, energy expert, vice chairman at S&P Global. Dan, it's good to see you. Thank uh, you. We- We saw Russia turn on the spigot for the Nord Stream 1 pipeline at 40 percent this week. Uh, What what does that tell you about uh, Vladimir Putin's intentions and whether he continues he might continue to weaponize energy? Well, it's pretty clear. I mean, one thing that's been noticed about Putin over the years, unlike a lot of other leaders, he really understands the energy markets and he knows what he's doing. He laid out a strategy last month at the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum where uh, high energy prices, disruption lead to social tensions, lead to populist parties coming together, change in elites, he said, and break the coalition. And I think that's exactly what he's doing here is reducing managing supplies to create disruption and drive up prices. So it's in a sense, what he's done is he opened a second front in the war, not only Ukraine, but an energy war in Europe. And that's what's going on right now. We had the president's chief economist on earlier, and she was touting the fact that gas prices have been falling. Uh, but it seems that that we're not out of the woods yet. I mean, you have these these, uh, you know, the releases from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve that are set to roll off this fall. You have the December 5th deadline when the European oil embargo from Russia goes and in, goes into place. And I'm wondering if you think that this this decrease in prices is short lived and we could go up from here throughout the fall. Well, I think we're in a very uncertain period, uh, and I think there is a lot of risk uh, over the next few months because you have this global energy crisis on top of a global geopolitical crisis and the interaction between the two. As you point out, the embargo that Europe is going to put on Russian oil, the uncertainty about uh, oil being shipped to other markets. Uh, I mean, gasoline has come down about 60 cents from where it was. And what is noteworthy is that U.S. gasoline demand compared to last year is down about 8 percent. And it's partly priced. And it also seems to be a slowing economy and, you know, a question of whether a recession is in the offing. Yeah, Republicans have been calling for more production here in the U.S. uh, to bring more supply onto the market. The oil and gas industry has been suggesting that uh, that they aren't able to get finance to reopen some of these refineries. And Dan, earlier this week, I sat down with David Solomon, who's the CEO and chairman of Goldman Sachs, and I asked him if Goldman would be willing to finance a refinery that a company wants to bring back online. He said yes. And here was the rest of his answer. Finance you know, energy in all different ways. And I've been very clear, I've said publicly that we continue to work with energy companies to finance. And I've also said publicly that I really believe in U.S. energy independence. And I think we need policy on that side. So the companies who say the money is not there, are they being disingenuous? Um, I think it's I think it's a little bit more complex than that. I think it's, you know, you can't look at just Goldman Sachs or any one individual bank. There's no question that institutional capital has been reallocating or shying away from certain industries. And that has an effect. 
So by institutional capital, he means the likes of BlackRock, Vanguard, Fidelity, not wanting to invest in some of those fossil fuel companies. But are you getting any sense that that capital, given the demand that we're seeing, is going to start flowing back into that sector? Well, I think there is some sense now. It's easy uh, when energy is uh, cheap and uh, there isn't a lot of pressure to sort of say, well, we're going to put capital elsewhere. But I think investors are now looking at energy and saying, actually, there are returns to be made there. Opening a refinery that's been shut is a pretty difficult job. It's not something you just turn around and you have to be, you know, because it's not only finance, it's also regulation. How much would it cost to upgrade to meet new regulations and so forth? So I think there is some new refi additional refinery capacity coming on the United States, but we've had a lot of closures or converting them to bioenergy uh, refineries. Uh, so, I mean, there is on top of this global oil tightness shortage, there's also a very big problem about refining. And in particular, mm -hmm. Russia, you know, the U.S. was importing five, 600,000 barrels a day of uh, intermediate uh, product uh, to make our refineries on the East Coast more efficient. And that stops. So there's a there's a whole disruption going through it. But I think there is a recess, reassessment that this amnesia about energy security uh, is over and realize the stakes are really very, very high. Yeah, well, U.S. is at 94 percent refining capacity, so hard to see where some of that comes from, though the administration is still calling for it. Dan, we appreciate your time. Dan Jurgen from S&P Global. Meanwhile, RBC is out with a new note today on the midterm saying one outcome in particular would be good news for stocks. We'll tell you what that is and debate the key economic issues at play with former senators from both sides of the aisle. The November midterms may seem far away, but a number of key primaries have already taken place with more coming in just a few weeks. Wall Street is paying very close attention today. RBC said the midterms are a potential positive catalyst into the end of the year, saying a shift to Republican control would be good for the market. Joining us now are former Democratic Senator Heidi Heitkamp and former Republican Senator Judd Gregg. Uh, thanks to both of you for joining us on this Friday evening. Uh, Senator Heitkamp, I'll start with you first. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, the top Republican in the House, has suggested that, that Republicans could pick up more seats this year than they did in 2010. Do you still think that's possible? I think I think it's highly at this point unlikely, given a couple factors, um, whether it's the January 6th committee or or um, the Roe decision, Roe v. Wade being reversed. I think you're seeing um, increased motivation by Democrats. And at this point in the midterms, this is about turnout. I think it's interesting. It's it's highly likely. And I don't think anyone would argue this point uh, very, very strongly that the Dem the Republicans will take control of the House of Representatives. The question is, by what margin? And only twice since John Kennedy in a midterm has the president's party actually gained seats in the House. So it's it's uh, it's part of history. But it also we're, we're in a really tough spot right now as Democrats with um, only 13 percent of the country thinking it's headed in the right direction. Our consumer uh, sentiment in index is very low and inflation and high energy prices are 
causing a lot of concern. The question mm -hmm. is, are there other factors that will lead and motivate Democrats to the poll to vote for Democratic candidates? So, Jed, how much time do you think the Democrats have going into the fall? Voters always want to know, what have you done for me lately? But when do you think is sort of the, the breaking point where if they can't get under inflation under control by, say, September or October or get gas prices to a certain point, what do you think the deadline is here? Well, I think the shoe has dropped unless there's some sort of international event which creates a disruptive event that refocuses the entire nation. And the shoes dropped for three reasons, two of, and one of which, uh, uh, ironically, Heidi mentioned, but I think it plays in a different way. The first is the American people have lost confidence in this president. You have to be honest about it. He doesn't come across as physically up to the job. And I have to say, although I like him as a person, he doesn't really come across as mentally up to the job. And he surrounded himself with who? AOC, Elizabeth Warren, Chuck Schumer, and Nancy Pelosi. And they really don't speak to Main Street America outside of New York City and San Francisco. And people are really frustrated with that. And they find they just don't see a lot of leadership there that they have confidence in. Secondly, uh, uh, Heidi mentioned the Trump hearings, which have been devastating to Trump and they should be devastating to Trump. But that's actually working uh, ironically and in the Republican favor because at one level, because it frees up Republican candidates to not have to kowtow to this Trump cult. Uh, and so they can run Although, independent of Trump. Uh, there was a monster Jonathan a Swan piece today in Axios where he had months of reporting showing that uh, that President Trump and his inner circle are plotting a gutting of the deep state if he were to to begin a second term in 2025. I mean, uh -huh. what do you think that does to the Republican Party and the Republican candidates when a story like that takes all the oxygen out of the room? Well, I don't think it takes the oxygen out of the room. It actually reinforces the fact that there are a lot of Republicans now, very effective and very capable Republicans who are talking about running for president and who will run whether or not Trump runs. I think Trump's balloon is is contracting rather quickly now, thanks to in part to the January 6th hearings. And that gives freedom to Republican candidates. And I think, think it puts them in a much better position because if, clearly the Democratic Party is trying to run against Trump again. Uh, well, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's not going to be the factor. Yeah, Heidi, go he ahead. I, 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 think it's, I think it's pretty important to point out that Dr. Oz in, in Pennsylvania, Herschel Walker, it's likely Trump is in Arizona either tonight or tomorrow. He's going to drive that primary turnout for a Trump you know, election denier. And so it is really overstating the case, I think, for the governor to suggest that Trump doesn't have yet again a very strong hold. Why is it, if, if, if the governor is right, why is it that it's only Liz Cheney and Anna Kinziger, who are sitting on that podium, basically uh, litigating this case about what happened on January 6th. I think well, it's I mean, Heidi, you can make fortunes. that point, and it's a legitimate point. But when we when we get to November, there are going to be a lot of candidates elected who basically right. distance themselves from Trump. And when we get towards yeah. 2024, you've got guys like Pence and uh, Pom yeah. Pompeo I'm who are actually running, thinking of running for president. They really are running for president. Uh, there, there's a couple 
Yeah, there's a couple trend lines that are positive for Democrats. Number one, I think having mm -hmm. Trump candidates, as the governor has said, having Trump candidates on the Senate ballot is not helping Mitch McConnell secure the Senate again. I think you also are seeing older Americans. I think mm -hmm. the message about Rick Scott sending something out saying we're going to revamp Medicare and uh, Social Security. I think we should continue this conversation over our, over drinks in about uh, six <laughs> minutes time. Unfortunately, we're up against the clock right now, but it's well, great to you. see you both. Thanks for having and, us uh, on. It's an important conversation. We'll keep it going because we've got a few months before November and even more months before 20. 24. After the break, the Washington events that uh, should be on every investor's radar for next week. We'll get you those up next. That's the week in Washington coming up. Welcome back to the CNBC special. Jimmy Pethokoukis from the American Enterprise Institute rejoins us again. Uh, Jimmy, you saw how busy the week is. Next week, you have President Biden possibly reemerging from isolation yes. at some point after Tuesday. You've got a slew of earnings. You've also got a ton of economic data. What do you think is most important? I'll tell you, you, you know, you were talking about that chips bill earlier in the show, which I call the chips and investment because the investment parts just to me is more important. And that bill, which could end up being like a, like a $200 billion bill, that may be the last big piece of legislation we see pass between now and the next presidential term. Because I think the midterms are going to go very poorly for the Democrats. I don't see a lot happening. So we look back, like that could be it. We're not going to get a Build Back Better bill. So, and I think that's actually a pretty important bill. And it shows that when China, when people start worrying about China, Congress can still do big things. What about the filibuster? President Biden said he supported a carve out to get some other social stuff done. You don't think that's possible between I, now and November? I don't think fundamentally that is going to happen. Uh, I, I really, I really, that's me as part of a lot of a, like center left liberal wish casting. I don't think that's going to happen. I certainly don't think that's going to happen about any big economic bills, ones that are most important for investors. Will you listen to Beyonce's album when it drops next Friday? Most important question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can plead the fifth on yeah, that. Yeah, I, 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 like Steve Bannon should have done, I, I plead the fifth. Jimmy. Thank you so much for okay. being here with us. We really appreciate it. That does it for us on this CNBC special, Politics and Profit. Thanks for spending your Friday night with us. The news with Shepard Smith starts right now. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.